Welcome to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I am your show host, Darren Fatman McDuffie, and today we have a conclusion of a previous episode, whether or not a conclusion, but just the same subject. I did a episode on fermentation a little while back with uh, another guest, and today we're discussing Wild Fermentation, which is a book by Sandor Cash. This is something that I'm very interested in, just simply because I'm going to be incorporating a lot of these things into my diet recently. I've had some digestive issues and want to improve my digestion to where it's kind of running real smoothly, so to speak. So again, we'll discuss wild fermentation with Sandor Katz. But before we do, let me read Sandor's bio. Sandor Katz is a fermentation revivalist, a self-taught experimentalist who lives in rural Tennessee. His explorations in fermentation develop out of overlapping interests in cooking, nutrition, and gardening. Wild Fermentation, originally published in 2003, along with his The Art of Fermentation and the hundreds of fermentations workshops he has taught around the world, have helped to catalyze a broad revival of the fermentation arts. Newsweek called Wild Fermentation the Fermenting Bible, and the New Dark Times called Sandor one of the unlikely rock stars of the American food scene. Without further ado, Sandor Gatz, Wild Fermentation. Enjoy. Sandor Katz, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you today? I am great. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. All right. Thank you for being here. And I'm really excited to discuss your book, Wild Fermentation. But before we get into discovering, uh, talking about the gist of the book, can you tell us your story? I usually ask everyone to kind of give us um, their story and how they got into what they're doing. And yours is very interesting. So I wanted you to share with the audience. Okay, sure thing. Um, so um, I am the author of a couple of books about fermentation. Um, and uh, I mean, I really just sort of like fell into an obsession with fermentation. Uh, in 1993, so 23 years ago, um, I moved from New York City, which was my hometown, um, to a community in rural Tennessee. Um, I had a career in municipal government in New York City, um, but I was at a moment where I kind of was ready for a big change in my life. Uh, the biggest sort of you know catalyst that was making me feel that way was that I tested HIV positive in 1991, um, and it just you know sort of changed my perspective about you know sort of everything my career my life and um you know uh, um after uh, about a year and a half of, of searching i met some people from this community i was very intrigued i went and i visited and i decided uh, uh to try living on a rural community in tennessee and as soon as i moved down uh, uh here and got involved in keeping a garden um, that really became a central focus, was growing food and feeding people. And um, I was such a naive city kid that it had never really occurred to me that in a garden, um, all of your cabbage would be ready around the same time or all of your radishes would be ready around the same time. So the first time I was, I was faced with this, um, you know, practical aspect of, um, you know, food production and agriculture, um, I decided to learn how to make sauerkraut. I was familiar with sauerkraut. 
Um, I loved sauerkraut as a kid, um, so I learned how to make sauerkraut. And you know, very quickly I moved on to making yogurt, um, country wines, which would be wines from uh, elderberries, blackberries, other kinds of uh, uh, fruits. Um, I started keeping a sourdough and baking bread with it, and I, I just kind of got obsessed with all things fermented. And um, you know, a few years, you know, that 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 built into a, a reputation among my friends and neighbors. I got invited to uh, uh, teach some sauerkraut making workshops. Um, you know, doing that in an, at an annual event for several years led me into writing a little booklet about fermentation that I self-published, like a zine. Um, and then as soon as I did that, I realized, though, this would be a really interesting and um, good thing to write a book about. Um, there's lots of information, but it's spread um, you, know, you know, in lots of different kinds of books, and there's nothing really pulling it all together. So I wrote a book. Um, and of course, writing the book opened up more doors for uh, for teaching about it. And um, you know, now I, I sort of find myself uh, uh, in the position of being an itinerant teacher about fermentation, and I travel around um, you know the United States and elsewhere, um, you know, lecturing and giving workshops on uh, fermentation. Yeah, you describe, you yourself, describe yourself in the book as having a, a fermentation, fermentation fetish. fetish. And, sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, at the time that I wrote the book, that's how I described myself. As things have evolved, I, I, I these days I refer to myself as a fermentation revivalist. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, I meant fetish in this in the in the sense of um, um, uh, you know. Um, uh, iconic objects. Um, um, so, uh, you know, fermentation was something, uh, uh, or is something, you know, kind of bigger than us. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so I, I mean, just to get into fermentation, I mean, let me um, uh, uh, just lay it out a little bit. But, you know, fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. Um, you know, many, many, many foods and beverages that people around the world eat are transformed by fermentation. Almost every individual in almost every part of the world eats and drinks products of fermentation every day. Um, you know, for some of us, that might start with a cup of coffee in the morning. Coffee is fermented. Bread is fermented, cheese is fermented, cured meats are fermented, all the condiments that we love to put on our food are either directly fermented, as in soy sauce and fish sauce, or else they use vinegar, which is a product of fermentation, in order to stabilize them. Chocolate is fermented, vanilla is fermented, certain varieties of tea are fermented, of course, beer and wine and ciders and any alcoholic beverages are fermented, um, sauerkraut, kimchi, pickles are fermented. Um, you know, according to one scholar of fermentation, one third of all food that human beings put into our mouths is transformed by fermentation before we eat it. So it is very, very widespread. And, um, you know, while I certainly don't have encyclopedic knowledge, I've been looking for a long time for um, counterexamples, culinary traditions that do not incorporate fermentation. And I have not come up with a single one. In your book, you describe yourself as a generalist more so than an expert. Um, explain that statement. Well, um, you know, I mean, I, I got interested in fermentation in the broader context of, you know, moving from an urban life to a, a rural life that was actually off the grid. And so I was learning lots of, you know, kind of homesteading, homesteading skills, you know, how to... 
um, uh, fell a tree and cut firewood and heat with wood. Um, you know, how to patch up the, the, the water system, how to grow food for people and preserve it. So, you know, it was, it was in this sort of broader context that I began my investigations of, of, of fermentation. And, um, you know, I would say that my, my knowledge of fermentation is really a, a generalist knowledge. I mean, let's just say that there are thousands of brewers in the United States and, you know, many more thousands around the world that know much more about brewing beer than I do. Um, there are bakers, um, um, you know, in every bakery who spend hours every day baking bread and they know more about baking bread than I do. Um, you know, you um, um, you know could take uh, you know any Indian family where they're making dosa or uh, or idli things that I like to make and teach people how to make. Uh, but people who grew up doing it and doing do it you know uh, uh, um, every day, every week, just as part of their practice in the household, know more about it than I do. So you know, rather than being an expert on any one of these you know very disparate. Uh, uh, styles of fermentation, um, I, you know, I'm a generalist. Uh, you know, I know uh, uh, I can connect a lot of dots. I know a little bit about a lot of different kinds of foods and beverages. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think that the context of that is, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a generalist. Yeah, yeah. I would say you probably know a lot about a lot of different things. But like you said, no, I mean, to me, you're an expert because I know very little about fermentation, but I get exactly what you are, what you're saying. Um, when it comes to, I wanted to kind of go back, you know, before every, before now, before we had Wi-Fi, before we had internet and all these other things. And in the book, I kind of came up with a question because uh, it said something along the lines of, farming, harvesting and farming. And sometimes you can get in these periods of where you have an overabundance or a surplus of crops. And then sometimes you have a scarcity of crops. Do you think that fermentation was actually brought about as a way to kind of maybe fortify your, your eating in those lean times? For instance, if you had an overabundance of crops or whatever meat or, or whatever it is, the way to kind of save that for a rainy day so to speak would be to ferment it and and i'm i guess i'm asking if you think that's why fermenting was actually a fermentation the process was actually invented well um well i mean first of all let me say that well on on one level yes absolutely i mean one of the most important practical applications of fermentation is food preservation and I would go so far as to say that agriculture would not be possible without fermentation because, you know, a, you know, a, a, a group of people can't invest all of their energy into crops that are ready at certain moments of the year unless they have strategies for preserving those crops to get them through the rest of the year. Um, you know, agriculture always, you know, comes in waves where there are periods when a lot of things are, 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 are ready and other periods where there's not a lot of fresh food to, to eat. So, um, so, so preservation has been a really important application of, of fermentation. And, you know, cheese is an example of milk preserved by fermentation. Uh, cured meats are, an example, are examples of meat preserved through fermentation. Uh, pickles and sauerkraut and kimchi are examples of vegetables preserved uh, uh, um, by fermentation. 
Um, and, and, and really, you know, if you take out refrigeration, which is a phenomenon of the last hundred years, and if you take out canning, which is a phenomenon of just the last 200 years, then fermentation was one of the only ways that people had to preserve food, um, in addition to drying it. Um, but in terms of your question about, about um, uh, fermentation being invented, uh, I think it's really important to recognize that um, humans did not invent fermentation. Fermentation happens spontaneously hmm. without us. Um, you know, anyone who picks a lot of berries uh, um, um, observes that, you know, sometimes the berries are, all, are already fermenting just as a spontaneous natural occurrence because yeast is everywhere and yeast finds its way to the fruit and as soon as the skins are damaged in, in any way, the yeast will begin to ferment the fruit. So fermentation is a natural phenomenon and there's uh, you know, lots of interesting evidence of uh, different kinds of insects and birds and animals being drawn to the, the smell of, um, of, of, of fermenting fruit um, uh, you know, and even of animals gorging themselves on fermented fruit and becoming um, inebriated. Um, and um, you know, if we think about our evolutionary history, I mean somehow we evolved with um, um, enzymes to be able to digest alcohol. So uh, you know, it suggests that our you know, evolutionary forebears were familiar with the phenomenon of, of, of fermentation. Um, you know, really with, with the human uh, um, you know, cultural um, achievement is, is not inventing fermentation, but it's creating vessels so that we can you know, bring fermentation from being this sort of natural phenomenon that happens on its own uh, uh, terms to something where we can make it happen inside of a vessel. Yeah. And you mentioned in the book, fermentation is everywhere. And you talk about, you know, just the act, the act of breathing that we are breathing and sharing, I guess, space with different microorganisms, different bacteria, different viruses and all of that, those other things. So actually, in all actuality, fermentation is everywhere. It's just that we tend to notice it more when we're eating sauerkraut or kimchi or, or those other things. Speaking of uh, you mentioned cheese and um, one of the things that I've encountered, and I'm sure that you probably encountered as well, is when you are in what we're doing, actually trying to educate people to bring them things that are more healthy, sometimes things come under fire. And I know in the book that they were talking about the, the essence of raw cheese, and that came under fire by the FDA. How, how common is this of an occurrence to actually have something associated with something that's been firm, fermented. I, I guess it would be, um, I want to say botulism or, um, you know, some other microbe where they actually, something's out there where they're telling you not to eat these fermented foods. Yeah, sure. Um, you, you know, I, I would say that because the earliest triumphs of the you know very young field of microbiology involved um, identifying uh, pathogenic bacteria, disease-causing bacteria, um, that in the popular imagination, bacteria have become associated primarily with danger, disease, and, uh, and death. Um, and so, you know, especially for all of us who were raised in the 20th century, um, 
you know, we, 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 we approach bacteria with fear and with suspicion because we've been indoctrinated our whole lives about how dangerous bacteria can be. So, you know, the prospect of cultivating bacteria, um, you know, in a jar of uh, cabbage or in a jar of milk seems scary to people. Um, and it's very easy for us to uh, um, project our, our, our fear on that. And, you know, and that that goes for uh, that goes for, um, you know, regulatory authorities um, um, as, as well. I mean, in fact, uh, fermentation really is a, a strategy for safety as much as anything else. Um, you know, stepping away from uh, uh, milk, animal products have their own, you know, unique set of, 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 of risks. But in the realm of um you know, vegetable fermentation, sauerkraut, kimchi, and such. Um, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, there has never been one single case of food poisoning documented from fermented vegetables. There's very few foods that you could say that about, um, and that's a really extraordinary safety record. It suggests that the process of fermentation makes vegetables safer than they are when they are raw, because every year we hear about outbreaks of, um, you know, different food foodborne diseases through raw vegetables, you know, um, lettuce, spinach, tomatoes, you know, you know, it always has to do with, um, you know, generally contamination in, in the field. But even if you took vegetables that have been contaminated like that, if you ferment them, the indigenous population of bacteria will always dominate as they acidify the environment. They kill off anything that we would regard as a, as a, as, as a pathogen. Um, you mentioned botulism. Mm -hmm. um, there's really, there's no case history of, of, of botulism. The reason we know the word botulism is, uh, botulism is because of canning. Um, and the you know unique environment of a vacuum that you create inside of a um, a, a sterilized jar um, uh, is sort of uniquely hospitable to the bacteria that, that causes botulism. But in the normal aero aerobic environment where we all live, botulism is not um, you know really um, um, a, a, a major uh, concern. Um, you know, as far as raw milk cheeses, I mean. I mean, animals can be healthy and animals can be unhealthy. And certainly, you know, our mainstream um, um, agricultural practices of, you know, factory farming and animals that, you know, rarely, if ever, see pasture, you know, results in unhealthy herds. And they can produce milk that can be unhealthy. So there is this safety concern with raw milk. But, um, you know, the, 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 the milk of healthy animals with adequate access to pasture is generally healthy milk. Um, and, you know, throughout the history of milk and cheese making, people have made milk out of raw milk cheese. Um, you know, they still are doing that. Um, and and it's even fairly widespread in the U.S. It just means a higher, you know, in order for that to be safe, we, we just need a, a higher um, um, uh, um, uh, higher standards for our farms. You know, we need our animals to have access to, uh, to, to to adequate pasture. And you know, you have to start with healthy milk if you want to make healthy cheese. Yeah. Um talking about the immune system i know you yourself you're hiv positive and obviously when you have any type of disease more so it's kind of suppresses the immune system or you have immune system suppression um how do fermented foods actually help with building the immune system because i think all of us can 
do something with building our immune system is simply because we're kind of disease phobic. Every time you look around, you see antibacterial. So I had a situation a couple of days ago after uh, my uncle's funeral where I was going in the door. We have something called a repast where they serve food and, and whatnot after the funeral. And I'm going in and there's a guy standing at the door waving this squirt antibacterial soap in my hand and I declined it. And he looked at me like I was crazy. But um, how... Again, does these firm, do these fermented foods actually help maybe build our immune system up a bit more? Um, sure. Um, uh, well, first of all, let me just point out that just the other day, the FDA has issued a new rule outlawing most of the chemicals that are used in antibacterial soaps. Yes, I saw uh, that. You know, so so you know they have come to the conclusion that you know, contrary to making people healthier, you know, the the the, the regular consumer use of these kinds of soaps actually makes us more vulnerable to bacterial illnesses. Um, but um, uh, so, you know, um, let me talk a little bit about some of the roles of bacteria in our bodies. So, you know. Contrary to the war on bacteria thinking that bacteria are so dangerous for us, um, you know, it turns out that the, that the cells of our bodies um, are outnumbered in our bodies by bacteria that we are host to. And these bacteria are not, um, uh, you know, they're not parasites. They're not even freeloaders. Actually, they give us a huge amount of our functionality. So our, our ability to effectively digest food and assimilate nutrients comes from bacteria bacteria in our bodies. Bacteria in our bodies synthesize essential nutrients for us so we don't have to find them in our food. Um, what we call our immune system is mostly the work of bacteria in our intestines. Um, um, we're learning that serotonin and other chemical compounds that um, affect our, our, our brain function, how we think and how we feel. Uh, are regulated by, by bacteria in our intestines. Um, the ability of the cells of our livers to regenerate is regulated by bacteria in our intestines. Almost every aspect of our um, you know, physical bodies and our, and our functionality is related to bacteria. Now, in the war of bacteria between antibacterial cleansing products, antibiotic drugs, chlorine that's put in the water to kill bacteria, you know, we all have pretty regular exposure to chemical compounds that kill bacteria and they don't kill all the bacteria but the way I think about it is they diminish biodiversity inside us. Usually we think about biodiversity is, is something out there, something that has to do with, um, you know, trees and, um, you know, wolves and um, whales. And, and it does. It has to do with all those things. But it also has to do with the inside of our bodies. And we are, we are going through a period of diminished biodiversity. And a lot of the, um, you know, sort of emerging epidemic diseases, you know, relate to the um, loss of biodiversity in our gut. So, so, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the main uh, potential benefits of eating and drinking fermented foods and beverages is um, their probiotic value, their, their, the, the bacteria in them that can help to promote greater biodiversity in our bodies. Now, not every fermented food or beverage has living bacteria. Anything that has been cooked or heat processed after its fermentation no longer has living bacteria. If you buy a can of sauerkraut at the supermarket, that's been heat processed, even though it was bacteria-rich 
to begin with, the heat processing kills the bacteria. So it's really a subset of fermented foods, live culture foods. You know, um, I would say the most available of them would be um, fermented uh, dairy products like yogurt and kefir, uh, fermented vegetables like sauerkraut and kimchi, lightly fermented beverages like uh, kombucha or um, ginger beer or mabi. Um, but, um, um, you know, all of these are are, are foods and beverages that have um, um, biodiverse communities of bacteria in them that can help to uh, uh, restore biodiversity, which can help our immune function, help our digestion, help our mental health, and potentially many other aspects of our uh, um, uh, 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 well-being. Yeah. Do you think we've kind of done ourselves a disservice by being so bacteriophobic? Well, yes, um, um, uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, certainly hygiene is important. Certainly, like, you know, learning that, you know, we need to, you know, wash our hands well after using the toilet and before uh, um, uh, uh, preparing food. I mean, uh, I mean, hygiene is important, but... Um, but we need bacteria. We need exposure to diverse bacteria. There's a there's a hypothesis that um, you know the rise in childhood allergies has to do with lack of exposure to bacteria. Um, um, you know the way our immune systems develop and learn is through exposure to varied bacteria. Um, so um, you, you know our attempts to protect ourselves from bacteria in general. Are generally, um, you know, not very helpful to us. Yeah, in the book, uh, it's talked a little bit about uh, Louis Pasteur, and I learned about him when I was in grade school um, in science. And they talked about how, you know, the, his last name is connotated with pasteurization, which is where it came from. But also, I, I didn't know before actually reading your book and preparing for the interview was that he kind of studied these fermented foods but it also seems like there's a catch-22 because we get the germ theory from him i come from the pharmaceutical industry and everything is about germs and viruses and killing germs and viruses but it seems like it's been a catch-22 because you had him on one end and really studying about these foods and fermented foods but then on the other end we seem to kind of extract out of what he studied to kind of invent a whole nother industry can you talk about that a little, a little bit or give your opinion on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, Louis Pasteur is a, is a very interesting um, um, historical figure for sure. I mean, he is definitely credited with, um, you know, definitively establishing um, um, for science that fermentation is a biological process. Um, that it is the work of um, microorganisms. And, um, you know, he first began his investigation of microorganisms, um, uh, you know, at the behest of a, um, a wine manufacturer. Um, uh, but then as he learned about bacteria, he, he studied other aspects of, of bacteria, including um, uh, bacteria as, as, as vectors of, uh, of, of, of disease. Um, and... Um, you know, I, I mean, I, it would be it would by, be naive uh, um, for me to say that um, you know ba bacteria had had no relationship to disease. I mean, obviously, there's the potential for bacteria to make us sick. You know, I think that you know the question is, you know, is it simply exposure to the bacteria, 
or or is it something more? So, you know, one of the one of the concepts that I have really come to believe is that our biodiversity largely protects us. And so, you know, if we constantly are coming into contact with these chemical compounds that diminish biodiversity, we're actually becoming more um, uh, vulnerable to disease. Let me put it another way. You know, all those antibacterial soaps that are beginning to be outlawed or where they're proposing regulations that would make these chemical additives um, 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 uh, 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 not permitted to be uh, uh, included in soaps. Um, they always advertise themselves on the basis of, you know, this soap kills 99.9% of bacteria. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, about the, that's about the sexiest thing that you could write on a container of soap is promising people that it'll kill 99.9% .9 of bacteria. But the thing is, what, what do you think protects us from the 0.1% of bacteria that can make us sick? It's the 99% of bacteria that we coexist with that create this extremely competitive environment that makes it extremely difficult for the pathogenic bacteria to establish themselves. But if we're continually killing off the 99.9% .9 of bacteria with these kinds of products, we make, our, we make our, our environment less competitive and thereby make ourselves more vulnerable to uh, uh, bacterial infection. So, so yes, bacteria are real. Yes, there do exist bacteria that can make us sick. But the best thing that can protect us from that is healthy communities of bacteria that, that, that we live with well, that are part of our body. So, um, you know, I think that the strategy of always trying to kill off the, the bacteria around us is, you know, really a counterproductive strategy. And we need to be thinking more about, you know, cultivating bacteria that can keep us healthy. Yeah. Um, my background is in antibiotics is what I saw and it was years ago, but I just remember how quickly bacteria adapt. They adapt really, really quickly, and then we are always constantly pushing them away from us. We're kind of missing out on something that I think could could really be helpful for us. And like you said, a lot of people are so afraid of bacteria, but again, we have a lot of children who have allergies, and that's because they're not being exposed to the bacteria that they're supposed to be exposed to. So it's kind of, a again, a catch-22. Uh, I've been dying to ask you this question. Um, in the book, it talked about how fermented foods actually help with the diarrhea but I'm going to kind of flip that and ask you does it help with constipation because you have a lot a lot of people don't have a problem in in the states with diarrhea <laughs> most people have a problem with actually pooping they can't poop so do fermented foods actually help with making people more <laughs> regular well, I, I mean, I hear you. I mean, definitely in our society, the 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 the, the biggest digestive complaint is, uh, you know, is constipation and slow digestion. And yes, I mean, you know, what live culture, bacteria-rich fermented foods can definitely help improve digestion. And I, I want to make really clear to you and your listeners that you know I am not a clinician. Um, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like sort of see people with health problems and make prescriptions for their health problems. But because I talk to so many people about fermented foods and beverages, I get to hear lots and lots of anecdotal stories. And I have heard from, you know, dozens and dozens of people that, um, you know, when they started eating uh, 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 fermented foods or beverages, their chronic digestive problems went away. So I've heard that from people who just experienced uh, uh, 
chronic constipation from people who have um, um, uh, um, acid reflux problems, and often from people with more serious uh, uh, diseases like irritable bowel syndrome or or other things. I mean, um, uh, you know, I mean, no, 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 no promises that any particular mm-hmm. you know problem will be resolved by eating these kinds of foods. But I have consistently heard from people who lived for years with chronic digestive problems that this you know significantly improved. Um, uh, uh, their, you know, overall digestive uh, uh, process. Yeah, I've, when I've eaten them, I've had uh, just noticed a little bit of improvement in my process, my digestion process, more so, you know, being a little bit more regular. So um, I would definitely tell people if they yeah. have a problem with being regular. And, just... and, and, I, and, and, and my observation is sort of the opposite because I've been eating these foods for so long but when I, what I notice is when I'm in some situation traveling where I don't have access to any of these foods for a couple of the days, mm-hmm. that my digestion slows down. Um, so I, I, I have a very, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, 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 strong sort of personal experience that, um, you know, these foods just help keep my digestion uh, functioning well. Yeah. Um, one thing that's been on the forefront for probably maybe one or two years is... Uh, a substance called glutathione, which, you know, our bodies make. But I was surprised that fermentation, you know, an act of fermenting vegetables and consuming fermented food, it actually produces glutathione and superoxide dismutase. Um, I know you're not a scientist, (laughs) but I was just surprised at that, that we have all these different foods and you can have, you can use a process like fermentation to produce uh, glutathione, which is very, very helpful to our body. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about glutathione at all, but mm-hmm. um, but I mean, fermentation creates a lot of extraordinary compounds. They're mm-hmm. they're metabolic byproducts of the um, you know the action of the bacteria digesting nutrients in in the food, and some of them are extraordinary. So, like fermented vegetables have these compounds called isothiocyanates, and um, they are regarded as anti-carcinogenic compounds that are actually produced by the bacteria uh, uh, during the fermentation. Um, uh, an, another ferment, maybe a little bit more obscure uh, in, in our part of the world, is a is a Japanese soybean ferment called natto. Um, but there's a there's a compound in natto that's gotten a huge amount of attention, and it's generally called natto kinase. And you can find supplements with this in any vitamin supplement store. Um, but natto kinase is believed to um, um, digest the fibers that accumulate in our blood vessels and constrict our circulation, uh, fibrin. Um, um, and so, you know, people with arteriosclerosis or other kinds of, you know, circulatory problems that have to do with clogged arteries, um, you know, basically the, 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 this byproduct of the natto fermentation helps break down these, um, uh, these uh, um, uh, fibers building up in the blood vessels. So there's a lot of really, um, you know, interesting... Um, uh, metabolic byproducts of fermentation that have some kind of um, you know therapeutic value yeah and you can pretty much ferment anything I wanted to kind of get into some practical things to do when you first start fermenting but um, I saw in the book where you someone you actually fermented goat meat 
talk about that experience because when I think about fermentation, I think about sauerkraut. I think about kombucha, of course, because kombucha has pretty much exploded. You see it everywhere, but you don't normally think about fermenting meat itself. But talk about your experience with well, fermenting the goat. Well, meat. I mean, so in wild fermentation, which I originally wrote in 2003, I had this one experience of, you know, kind of just playing around with trying to ferment some goat meat. But since then, I've done quite a bit of fermentation of meat. And, you know, anyone who's ever eaten salami has eaten fermented meat. Salami is fermented meat. It's, it's raw fermented pork, um, you know, that can hang on a string in, in a delicatessen for months without refrigeration, um, you know, as a result of the fermentation. Uh, 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 which which preserves it, but I mean that that first experiment was pretty ad hoc. I mean, I basically took little pieces of goat meat and you know put them in. A, I mixed all the different ferments I had around, so it was a mixture of um, um, uh, uh, wine and yogurt and miso and sauerkraut juice. And I just mixed all these things together and put goat meat in it. You know, as you read the story in the book, I mean, it it, it smelled pretty 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 strong and cheesy and. Um, uh, um, you know, we had to open the windows. Some people didn't like the smell, but the taste was actually delicious, and the the, the meat was very tender. Um, uh, you know, fermentation can lead to you know extreme flavors um, uh, and extreme aromas, but also fermentation. Can, you know, think of cheeses. So, so you know, almost all oh, cheeses yeah. fermented. But, you know, some cheeses have more mild kinds of flavors and some cheeses have really these like very stinky, pronounced, uh, you know, edgy um, um, kinds of aromas and flavors that remind people of decomposition. And the same thing happens with the fermentation of, 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 feet, of, of, of fish or, um, or, or meat. Um, but but fermented meat is simply part of the landscape. I mean, you know, anybody, you know, almost anybody who eats meat sometimes has eaten fermented meat. And, um, uh, you know, salami is the most specific one that's widely known. But really, in a sense, all hams involve fermentation, too, because, um, you know, they involve um, uh, aging. And one of the things that's happening while it's aging is microbial transformation. But basically, nothing that could nourish us cannot be fermented. Any food can be fermented, which doesn't mean every food has, you know, equally well-established traditions of fermentation, but any food we could eat can be fermented. Yeah. I remember my first experience going into a Whole Foods. I remember going where they keep all the cheese and I'm like, what is that smell? <laughs> I didn't know because I was so used to how, you know, buying cheese, the cheese slices, imitation cheese. I never really smelled any real cheese. That was my first experience with was uh, you know experiencing that real cheese smell so I was like okay what is that why does this smell so strong and now you know now I know but um, I wanted to ask you this because I know that recently there's been a lot of discussion on probi probiotics and the, the we need more probiotics in our diet a lot of people are having digestive problems um, is it better to combine fermented foods and probiotics or if you're eating fermented foods like you do on a regular basis is there any need to even take probiotics 
Well, from my perspective, fermented foods are probiotics. And, um, you know, all traditional fermented foods involve these broad communities of organisms. um, And they actually are embodiments of biodiversity, much more so than most probiotic capsules. So certainly there's no problem with doing both. But probiotics are expensive, and I, I actually think that um, uh, you know, for, for 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 my money, I'd rather you know, I'd rather invest in good quality food, and um, um, you know, or or food that is easy to make yourself, um, and get um, you know the greater biodiversity uh, um, that's found in live fermented foods rather than capsules. Yeah. Now I wanted to take the last minutes or a couple of minutes of the interview and kind of get into the whole mechanics of. Of fermenting, from what I can grasp from, you know, seeing different stuff on the internet, uh, reading different books. I had yourself, your own now, and then I had someone on recently. We talked about fermentation as well. It seems to me like the easiest thing to start with is sauerkraut, <laughs> and then probably I just described it sauerkraut maybe two or three years ago myself, uh, and I put it on a hot dog and I fell in love with it. But uh, talk about. What might be the easiest thing from your perspective? You've been doing this a lot longer than I have. I haven't actually even dipped myself into doing it. I keep telling myself I'm going to do it and and get the materials. But what's the easiest thing to start with? And what are some of the materials that you might need when you're first starting this process? Um, I almost always recommend sauerkraut as a first fermentation project. It doesn't have to just be cabbage. You can you know, mix in any other kind of vegetables you like. Um, I'm going to describe how to make sauerkraut. It'll take me about 30 seconds. It's incredibly easy. You chop vegetables. They can be very fine or coarse as you like. I like with, with root vegetables, I like to use a hand grater and grate them. But what you're trying to do is create surface area on the vegetables. Then you salt them, lightly salt them to taste. There's no magic number. It's not highly technical. It's always easier to add salt and subtract salt. So I like to salt lightly as I'm chopping the vegetables. And then at the end, I'll taste it and add more as necessary. Um, um, the salt starts to pull water out of the vegetables. The, the environmental condition that we're trying to create when we make sauerkraut is getting the vegetables submerged under liquid, ideally their own juices. Um, so the salt starts pulling liquid out of the vegetables. Now, what I like to do is after I'm finished chopping and grating, get in there with my hands and start squeezing the vegetables with some force. And what that does is it bruises the vegetables, it breaks down some cell walls, and helps release the, the juice faster. Once you can pick up a handful of it after a few minutes of squeezing, and you, um, and you squeeze the handful of vegetables, and, and juice comes out like a wet sponge then you're ready to um, um, put your vegetables into the vessel. You can season them with whatever kinds of spices you like. You can leave it plain, or you could add garlic, or you could add caraway seeds, or you could add um, um, you know, turmeric and, and cumin. You could add dill, any kind of seasoning you like. Um, mix it all up together and stuff it in your vessel. Your vessel could be a jar. That's the Mm -hmm. easiest vessel that we all have sitting in our pantries. Or you could use a ceramic crock. You could use a wooden barrel. You could use a plastic bucket. You want to stay away from metal because the salt can corrode metal and the acids that develop over time can corrode metal. And then you ferment it. And there's no, there's no, um, you want to make sure the vegetables are, are, are nice and submerged under juice. If there's not enough juice in the vegetables, add a little bit of water. 
Mm -hmm. um, keep them submerged and give it three or four days and then just taste a little bit and then press them back down. Give, give it a few more days, taste it again. You'll notice that it, the flavor gets stronger, more acidic as the days go on. There's no prescribed length of time. A lot of contemporary books say two or three days. Historically, a lot of people would do it for six or eight months. Um, you know, it just all depends. The warmer it is, the faster the fermentation happens. Um, there's no danger in this process, but, you know, there are things that can go wrong. Sometimes you'll get um, uh, um, yeast or mold growing on the surface. If anything like that develops, just skim it off. Um, if you let it go for a long time or the environment is very hot, the vegetables might start to get a little bit soft. Um, you know, if that, that's the work of enzymes, is there's nothing dangerous about it. You know, when I first notice they're getting soft, I get them in the fridge to slow down that process and enjoy them. Um, but, um, you know, that's as simple as it is. Some people like it after two days. Some people like it after two weeks. Um, you know, you, the only way you can find out how long you'll like fermenting it is to, um, you know, try it at different intervals and see. But it's, this process is really easy. Um, no recorded cases of food poisoning or illness, nothing to be fearful of. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an incredibly wonderful way to, um, you know, enjoy delicious vegetables through the winter, um, you know, make every sandwich wrap or, um, uh, you know, or, or, or omelet uh, a probiotic as well. And um, just a, a terrific... Um, um, addition to any meal, really. Yeah. Um, is there a different process for doing beverages? Because I, I know we talked a little bit earlier about kombucha, but is there a different process? I understand with sauerkraut, you might be using salt, but is there something different when you are fermenting a beverage, a different material or a different process? Well, there's there's a lot of different kinds of beverages. Um, I mean, you, there, there are fermented vegetable beverages as well. Um, um, uh, a popular one called beet kvass comes from uh, uh, the Ukraine. But with something like kombucha, first of all, for kombucha, you, de you need the mother of kombucha, a scoby, a symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast, which is the starter for making kombucha. It looks like a, like a rubbery pancake, basically, that floats on top of sweet tea. Mm -hmm. But then the process is really easy. You just make some tea cool it down, uh, uh, mix some sugar into it. Once it's body temperature, you add a little bit of mature kombucha and then you float the scoby and you need to use a, um, a vessel with a broad surface area because the uh, kombucha is an example of an aerobic ferment that needs oxygen. Um, and then you just sort of cover it with a cloth and let it ferment um, for, you know, usually a week to, to 10 days uh, has a, uh, develops a flavor that, that, that most people like. Um, uh, you know, if you wanted to make a, a wine or, you know, you would take grapes and crush them or any kind of a fruit and mix it with a sugar water solution and just let the, the yeast and bacteria from the fruit uh, uh, develop in the sugary solution or in the uh, 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 fruit juice, uh, and you don't use any salt in that case. So yeah, different different ferments uh, uh, have different requirements. Uh, you know, none of it is rocket science. People have been doing all of the, you know all of the major ferments are thousands of years old. So um, you know, certainly in our um, in our home kitchens in the 21st century, um, uh, we, we can do them. You just have to understand the environment you need to create, and that's what my books are all about. Um, 
Wild Fermentation is my first book that came out in mm-hmm. 2003, but I've just revised it and the revised edition just came out within the last few weeks. Um, and then I have another book called The Art of Fermentation that came out in 2012. That's a, 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 a bigger and more thorough uh, treatment of the topic. Um, both books are available on my website, wildfermentation.com, um, as is a schedule of my workshops um, and links to all kinds of fermentation-related resources. Yeah. I had just two more questions for you. I'm going to keep, keep you a little bit more. Um, the first one is maybe integrating these with our meals. And to me, it's it's really easy, but I, I just asked a question for the audience out there because usually when you have a meal, you kind of put you know, your string beans on the plate. I would imagine it's just like that with your fermented foods, but are there any things that are combinations that might go better with certain with certain dishes? For me, I like to eat maybe lamb with potatoes or something like that. Is there any combinations that you find that are better or is just pretty much wide open when it comes to integrating them well i think it's pretty wide open but i mean mm-hmm. i think i think of fermented vegetables as um as almost like a condiment um yeah. you know so they can be they can be a side dish but they also can go great on a sandwich like you mentioned it on a hot dog um mm-hmm. sauerkraut on a hot dog but on any kind of a sandwich or or any kind of a wrap um um they're they're delicious um, uh, you know, or with anything. I mean, I, what I like to do is have different kinds of fermented vegetables. Um, so, okay, lately I've been eating a, um, um, a sauerkraut that was cabbages and beets together. And then also I fermented some watermelon rinds. So then I have also have these watermelon rind pickles. So, you know, with different meals, I'll incorporate, you know, different, um, uh, uh, different fermented vegetables, not really according to any, you know, particular, um, um, uh, uh, philosophy of food combining, but just, just, um, you know, just, just based on, you know, what, what, what's appealing to me, um, um, you know, to, to, to eat together. Uh, you know, this morning for breakfast, I had I, I had an omelet with a little bit of sauerkraut just on the side of the omelet. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It just sounds like it's very easy to integrate. I think that you know sometimes we put too much thought into it, <laughs> and, and I, I like to make things simple. So if I'm like you, if I want to eat sauerkraut in the morning, I'll go ahead and eat sauerkraut in the morning <laughs> on the side of, of something else. I don't really give it that much thought. It's like, oh, this doesn't go with this or whatever. It's just according to my taste. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you, Sandor, was um, I've never heard of this. And most of the time I know if I haven't heard of anything and I've been kind of studying nutrition for 11 years. I more, more so know the layperson hasn't really heard of it either. So I wanted to ask you about it. And it, it, it deals with corn because I used to have really you know digestive issues with corn and I kind of took it out of my diet. But there's a process that you describe. It doesn't have anything to do with fermentation, but there's a process that you described in your book called, and I can't even pronounce it. It's called nixtamalization. Nixtamalization. Okay, you got it. But talk about that because I think that for a lot of people who have issues with corn, this this might be something that we're missing when it comes to uh, partaking in corn, something that we may need to do. And this process comes from years years and years ago from a different culture but we know nothing about it today uh, actually when reading your book was the first time I ever heard of it but talk a little bit about that and kind of expand on the audience's knowledge on it 
Sure. So the 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 corn cultures of the Americas, uh, and uh, and you know, corn corn is a crop that evolved uh, first in Central America and then spread throughout North and South America. Um, by the time um, the uh, um, by by the time the Spanish um, um, arrived in, in the Americas and uh, and brought it back to Europe, but um, most of the corn cultures of the Americas. Um, uh, generally treated corn um, uh, by um, uh, cooking it with some with wood ashes or um, or lye, um, and with that, and they 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 use that as a way of removing the um, uh, the tough hulls from the corn, mm-hmm. um, but it also altered the corn nutritionally. Um, and um, changed the amino acid uh, um, uh, ratio of the corn and made it just much better nutrition for people. Um, and nobody really knows how this, um, uh, 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 um, you know, how, how this method developed in the first place. Um, you know, it's very, very widespread um, th- throughout the Americas. Um, um, you know, indigenous people have, have, have worked with processes like these. Um, and uh, it just makes corn much more nutritious. Um, in, the, in the southeastern United States where I live, I live in Tennessee, um, the, the word for this would be hominy. So when you hear about grits, uh, they're usually yes. hominy grits. Yes. But hominy traditionally is corn that's cooked with wood ash in the same process as nixtamalization. Um, and, um, you know, it just, it just makes corn much, much more nutritious. And, and interestingly, outside of the Americas, when, when, when corn was exported from the Americas to um, uh, uh, Europe and Africa and elsewhere, um, places where it became a staple crop um, but they, but they did not, you know, bring this this um, processing method with them. Um, there was widespread um, uh, pellagra, which is a, a nutritional deficiency disease, and this disease had never really been seen in the Americas because of this nixtamalization. And it's a very simple process. I mean, it's you basically sift some wood ash, and you know briefly cook the corn with the wood ash it changes color um the hulls loosen or if you cook them long enough dissolve actually if you cook the corn long enough the corn itself can dissolve um so it's generally a pretty brief process and then you wash it really well to get rid of any residue of the of of of, of the ash um, but, um, uh, you know, if you go to a Mexican market and you buy masa flour, this is flour of corn that has been treated with this process. Cool. Yeah, I've never heard of that process. And uh, you just mentioned hominy grits. I just had uh, some of those while I'm here visiting my aunt in South Carolina. So I'm, I'm, I was wondering why I wasn't really getting any digestive issues, but I guess I know now why I wasn't getting any. But um, Sandor, thank you for being with me today. And I know you mentioned this before, but um, your book, I'm, I'm assuming, is going to be available on Amazon while fermentation, which is what we're discussing today. And uh, what is, do you have a website? Yeah, yeah sure. So my, my website is wildfermentation.com. Um, and, um, and the books are also available on my website or Amazon or local bookstores, um, um, hopefully anywhere. Okay. Again, Sandor, thank you for being me. It's been a pleasure, and I really enjoyed the interview. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it, too. Have a good day. Thanks.